You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Well, good morning, church family. Hope you're doing well. Happy Daylight Savings to you, or as we call National Caffeine Day. I got to be straight with you, y'all. The 9 a.m. was certainly the decaf service. I am praying that y'all have... Y'all have redeemed that lost hour somewhere this morning, and you are in here, you are energized, you are ready to go, because I'm going to tell you this passage we're going to be in today is one of my favorite. I've been waiting to preach this one, and so I'm a little amped up this morning, maybe a little too much coffee, but we're going to have a lot of fun in this. Turn with me, if you would, to Romans chapter 8. We're going to pick up in verse 28. Romans 8, we, uh, I got to just be right up front and tell you this, this passage that we're going to enter into today is gonna start a concept that we're gonna carry through for the next month or so. And uh, this can be one of the most, for some, one of the most challenging passages, maybe one of the most challenging doctrines in all of scripture. And yet I will argue that when it's understood rightly, this will become one of the most cherished passages in your Bible. This will become one of the most comforting uh, doctrines in all of scripture and uh, one that I believe will exalt the name of Jesus high and above every other name, specifically, namely, our own. And we are talking about here this morning, over the next several weeks, the doctrine of sovereign election, uh, the forbidden P word that's going to show up in your Bible this week called predestination, the idea of God's choosing and securing our redemption before eternity uh, started and long after into eternity future. And uh, I got to remind us just the section that we've been in the last several weeks here in Romans chapter eight really is all about the security of a Christian's salvation. Um, and uh, uh, specifically the security that we have in the midst of our sanctification, this ongoing process of being transformed in the image of Jesus and this security that can never be taken away especially as we need to know during seasons of suffering. And that's where we've been in the past couple of weeks. And, you know, why is this important? Because I, I got to believe that even the strongest of faiths among us, those of us who are strong in our faith right now, can probably testify that there are still moments when we can find ourselves in seasons of doubt, where we can find ourselves second-guessing the goodness of God, second-guessing the sovereign power of God, and certainly second-guessing our salvation in God, especially when the wheels of life begin falling off around us. And uh, I, don't, I don't know how many of you have wondered this. I know I may, I doubt I'm the only one, but just even this past year, I mean, how many of y'all have had moments where you're just like, God, where are you? Like, what is going on? Like, have you forgotten about us? Like, did... did have you, have you loosened your tether on us, Lord? Is, is what's going on around us is this something I did? Is, this, or is, it, is your will like actually going to happen or not? Where are you? Like Anybody ever wrestled with those questions in the midst of suffering? I mean, I know I have. And yet Paul is, writes this section here in Romans 8 to remind us, to remind the believer in Jesus Christ that not only is there a their hope in your suffering, not only is there help in your suffering, but there is security in your suffering. There is security from a God who will not, and as we'll see in this passage, who cannot let you go, but will actually and faithfully see you all the way through to the end. 
where your faith will become sight. He who started this good work will be faithful to finish it because the work doesn't rest ultimately upon you, but he who works in us and through us for his good pleasure. And what Paul's gonna do starting in this passage this week is he's gonna essentially pull back the curtains on our salvation. He's gonna open up the curtain of Oz here. He's gonna show us the inner working of why this is true, why you cannot lose your salvation. And what he's gonna show us is because you did not choose God as much as God chose you. Before the foundations of the earth were even laid, he chose you in your redemption and what God chooses, God cannot lose. Now, I know when it comes, if you've ever studied sovereign election or predestination, it's gonna come with a lot of questions. And I have spent 30 years plus in my, um, my journey, my faith journey, asking, I guarantee the same questions you're asking. The questions of, yeah, but what about, or isn't that unfair? Or doesn't that, you know, what about those who don't? And, and doesn't that make us robots? And, you know, all these questions that are gonna come with it. And those questions are real. And I just want to encourage you to hang in, in here for the long haul. Because I mentioned earlier, the book of Romans works like stacking like a bunch of Legos. Each argument asks a question that leads to an answer that begs another question that leads to an answer, and they just stack together. And Paul is going to address every one of those questions between now and the next several chapters as we walk through them here. But for this text this week, my prayer is that it would become great encouragement for those of you who, whose faith is in Jesus Christ to know that your God cannot lose you. Now, Here's it is. If you're, if you're an outliner in, uh, in this section, here's where we're going to roll, verses 28 through 39 of chapter 8. Three movements to this passage we're going to see. We're going to see the purpose of our salvation. We're going to see the plan that God has in our salvation. And we're going to see the promise of that salvation. Three movements that we walk through. Let's start here in verse 28 with the purpose of our salvation. Arguably, one of the most famous verses in the New Testament, maybe next to John 3, 16, is right here in verse 28. Paul says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Now, if you were to circle the words, we know, there in verse 28, what would you contrast that with in verse 26? We do not know. In other words, when we are walking through the brokenness of life, there are a lot of things that we don't know. We don't know why things are happening like they're happening. We don't know why the wheels are falling off. We don't know how we're even gonna make it through this. We don't know what to do. We don't even know what to pray, as we saw last week. But we do know this. If there is one thing that you can hang your hat on in the midst of suffering as a believer in Christ, if you are God's child, he will work all of this out for good. This is the truth to hang your hat on. This is, this is the truth. And now you say all things? <laughs> okay, wait a minute. Even the hard things? What about the evil things? Paul says all things. Though God did not cause the evil to happen in your life, he is in sovereign control of it. And like Joseph of old, he will take what the enemy meant for evil and he will use it for good. Whether it's in this life or certainly as he's anticipating the glory of life that is still to come. 
God will have the final say. Paul told the Corinthians, we see in part, we know in part right now, but there's a day coming when we're gonna see and we're gonna know in full. Right now, we have got about a 20 second clip of a two hour movie that we've poked our head into. And the sad tragedy is many of us love to take that 20 second clip and try to argue that we know better than what the director of the movie has put together for us. You gotta see the whole movie. And right now, God sees the whole thing. We only see in part. And God has promised he has the sovereign ability and decreed will that he will take all things for the believer in Jesus Christ and will use them for good and his glory. God will not waste your trials. He will not waste your pain. He will find a way to use what you're walking through in accordance with his greater purpose. Now, what is his purpose, you might ask? It's the next verse, verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, here it is, to be conformed to the image of his son. In other words, the end goal of your salvation, the end goal of our sanctification and trials is not that we would just grab hell insurance and then kind of just, you know, muscle our way through to the end in bitterness. No, the, the purpose is, is that God wants to make you and I look more like Jesus. The whole end goal is that by the end of this thing, either when we die or the Lord returns, whichever comes first, is we would look more like Jesus than we did at the beginning of our salvation. This is what he's trying to accomplish in us. And we know that he's gonna conform us to the image of our older brother, he says there. Jesus, who is the, the, uh, the firstborn among many brothers. Our, Jesus, who is our older brother, he, he himself who took on our flesh, who walked in the sufferings that we walked in, who went into the grave as we will walk into and came out on the other side and resurrected glory just as we will. Jesus is the first fruits of our salvation. He is the first to taste what we're walking through and what we will know one day. And what's true of him is true of us. And all of us who have been adopted into his family, God has a purpose in your salvation that not even your sufferings, not even our enemy can thwart. God does it. Now, please note this. It is important to understand who Paul is writing this to. When we see a verse that goes, and my God will work all things out for your good, that is not a Unitarian verse right here that is meant to be stamped on your Hallmark card and sent to your non-believing friends. That is a promise that is only given to God's elect, those whom he has chosen, who he has called, predestined, the elected believer, who as a result loves God. It is a promise for those who are in Christ. That's where that promise applies. But the purpose of that salvation is to conform us to the image of the Son. Now, I don't know if you caught it in here, but there's a plan of salvation that was just described in here as well. You saw, probably noticed a few interesting words in there, words such as called, foreknew, predestined. These are describing the plan of salvation that God has drawn up in order to bring this salvation about from beginning to end. And both the definitions of these words and the order in which they appear are incredibly significant. Most Christians agree who it is that saves us, but many always don't agree on how. 
And Paul pulls back the curtains here in verses 28, 29, and 30 to show us the inner workings of how this salvation takes place and the order in which God has decreed that it would happen. And so listen to this, verses 29 and 30. Paul says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, again, we we have to understand these definitions and the order of them in order to make sense of what Paul is trying to communicate here about our salvation. The first word, there's several words, there's seven words I want you to circle right here because they are huge. The first word I want you to circle is the word called in verse 28. This is a word, kletos, which means invited. Now, just make a note. Hold that right there. We're going to come back to it. The word called in verse 28 means invited. The second word, though, this is a big word, the word foreknew in verse 29. Circle that word. That word foreknew is a huge word in your Bible. Uh, The Greek word that's used here is the word prognosko. We get the term prognosis from it. It's a prognosis. If you've ever been to the doctor and they kind of determine what your ailment is and they lay out the prognosis, they are literally describing the course for how something will play out. In this sense, foreknowledge is God's intimate knowledge for who and how he is going to redeem. Think about that for just a moment. He knew you. He foreknew you before the foundations of the earth were even laid. His intimate knowledge of you. Now, what that word is not, it's very important to note, foreknowledge is not the same thing as foresight. A lot of folks want to take this passage and others like it and take the word that we see is there. We all agree that word's there, but they want to change the definition because we can't understand that God would predetermine something, doesn't that take away our free will? And again, we're going to get to those questions later, but right now, foresight is the term that a lot of people want to use to say that what this is, is this is God looking down through time and eternity future, and he sees who will choose him. He sees who will put their faith in Jesus, and therefore he chooses you. He elects you. There's a couple of problems with that. One, nowhere is this word foreknowledge used ever describing that definition. But second, that would be the equivalent of throwing a dart on a wall and then circling a bullseye around it and go, man, look at the aim I got. It would deprive you of all omniscience here. God is not looking down through time and seeing who would elect him and therefore he elects them. No, this is foreknowledge. This verse is talking about God's omniscience that is in here of his intimate knowledge of you before you were ever born. That's how this word is always used. It's God saying to Jeremiah in Jeremiah 1.5, I knew you in your mother's womb before I even made you. I knew you. I knew who you were. This is Peter describing Jesus in 1 Peter 1.20, that Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world. That doesn't mean that God looked down through time and went, oh, Jesus is there, I think I'll pick him. No, he knew him before we had ever laid the foundations of the earth. Jesus preexisted. 
Foreknowledge is the idea of God's intimate knowledge of you and your redemption. He knew you. And then what happens, as Paul keeps going here, is he tells us God took this, this knowledge that he had of you, this intimate knowledge of you and your redemption, and he drew out a plan for it. It's where we get the term predestined. Predestined in verse 29, it's the Greek word prohoriso. We get the term horizon from this word. A horizon is showing you the boundary marker of where the sun and the earth's edge meet. And in this situation here, it literally is defined as to mark out the boundaries beforehand. It's a master architect who lays out the blueprint before anything's ever built. This intimacy that God has in mind of you and your salvation, it became a plan that God put into action. He drew out the boundaries of your salvation before you were ever created. Before you were ever born, God predetermined exactly how and when he would draw you unto himself. And again, we see this in scripture when, when Paul and Barnabas go on their first missionary journey and they preach their first sermon in Gentile territory. All these Gentiles come to faith and Luke describes it this way in Acts 13, 48. As many as were appointed believed meaning God drew this thing up before it ever came to be. And in that moment, that action, that plan came to fruition. He appointed. And so what Paul is saying here is at just the right time, the mind of God that foreknew you became the plan of God that predestined you. And then at one point in time and space in history, his plan burst forth and grabbed hold of you. And that's where we get the next term in verse 30, called. Now circle that. We're going to go back to the first one we saw. The verse, uh, verse 30, the word called there. Now you wouldn't know it in your English translation because it just says called in verse 28. It says called in verse 30. You wouldn't know those are two different Greek words. The word in verse 30 is the word kaleo. It means to summon. The word that was used in 28 is kletos, which means to invite. The summoning of your salvation in verse 30, this is God's effectual calling in your life. This is that irresistible grace that drew you in a work of the spirit. And I don't know whether it was at a summer camp, it was here in this room, it was with a friend or a parent who shared the gospel with you. At some point in time, it was the work of the Spirit to open your eyes for the first time to the reality of the good news of Jesus Christ and put your trust in him. And this work of the Spirit is a gift apart from which we could not do on our own. And again, we see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 9 through 10, Paul tells us, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, He tells us no heart has even imagined what God has prepared for us. This salvation, we can't even fathom it. Why? Because it was the spirit who revealed it to you. Like you didn't come up with this. It was the spirit who opened your eyes and your heart to believe and summoned you forth in salvation. Paul said to the church in Philippi, in Philippians 1.29, he tells them this belief that you have, it was granted to you. Even the gift of faith is something that God has appointed 
because on our own, we could not, we had no brilliance of our own to come up with it. It was God's efficacious grace given to you. And in Acts chapter 16, when Paul went into Philippi, Philippi for the very first time and shared the gospel and Lydia puts her faith in Jesus, in Acts 16, 14, it says, the Lord opened Lydia's heart. He's the one who did this. Literally, that word open means the untangling of a net. He unscrambled her heart and he allowed her to see for the first time so that her faith would be in Jesus. Here's kind of what's going on. It's almost, just for human terms here, it's almost as if a party is being thrown. And in verse 28, what God does is he determines he's gonna make an invite list. And then what happens, he starts with an invitation list. Those that are on that list are those that he had in his mind before the foundations of the earth were ever laid. And then what he did is he took that knowledge of that and he, he drew out a plan for how he's gonna get them to the party. And at the right time, that invitation showed up and you opened it and it summoned you forth. And it was the grace of God that did so. And when you open that invitation and you put your trust in Jesus, the next thing that happened in verse 30 is you got justified. We've looked at this term over and over in Romans chapter three. It means to be declared righteous. The moment that you put your trust in a blood-bought salvation of Jesus Christ on the cross for you, where you took your trust formally in your works, which were nothing, they only brought you death, and you took that trust and you transferred it to Jesus Christ and were given life. And because of his work on the cross for you, your sins were canceled out and righteousness was imputed into your account. And you were declared innocent. Your sins were forgiven and you were adopted and redeemed by Jesus. And then what happened then, and this is the, it's an interesting word in verse 30, those who are justified are glorified. We're glorified. Now there's something funny about this word. It's in past tense. And, and you go, wait a minute, Paul just got done talking just a few verses earlier in Romans chapter eight that we're, we're waiting right now. We're groaning for a future glory, a glory that's yet to be revealed yet. It's coming, but it's not here yet. But now he says, if, you've been, if you're facing Jesus and you've been justified, then you've been glorified. How in the world can a future act be a past tense? It's because at the cross, it was a done deal. It's as if right now, if you've put your faith in Jesus, it's as if right now you are already seated with Jesus at the right hand of the Father. Because you are, positionally speaking. Even though presently we're still in this tent, this flesh, we're waiting for that day. Positionally speaking, it's as if you are right there right now. That is how secure your salvation is. It's already been guaranteed. Now, if you are saved, man, well, that's what we are waiting for. And this is, this is the description. This is the order that Paul says our salvation takes place. And he'll use one word in verse 33. This is our seventh term here. One word that sums up all of who we are in this process when he uses the word elect in verse 33. The word eclectos means chosen ones. And again, we see this before. Paul wrote to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 1.4. He reminds them that they were loved by God and that he had chosen them. They were chosen in love, that God redeemed them. Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2. The reason he continues to evangelize, the reason he endures is for the sake of the elect, those who've been chosen by God. 
This is why he strives. God knows who his people are, and at the right time, he will bring them forth. Here's Paul's point in this, by the way, really two points. Number one, God has purposes in this life for you and I that we can't even fathom. And one of those purposes happens to be the salvation of a people who do not deserve it. And God is working out that plan to bring those people about. But the second thing is, is that if he has chosen you, then you are secure. Your salvation cannot be lost. Here's another way of reading this text that I think has helped me just to see the specificity of what he's talking about. Let's assume my, my verses 28 through 30, I see a lot of those in whom's. Use generic terms talking about these, you and I, these people who have been chosen by God and saved and redeemed, those and whom's. And that just seems so general and vague. Let's, let's put some specificity on it. Let's say for just a moment, just track with me on this really poor illustration, but let's just say at the end of time, there's 15,497 people who are going to be in heaven. Now, I'm not using Jehovah's Witness math right now, so it's just an, it's an illustration, okay? There's a lot more, obviously. But let's assume 15,497 people. Listen to how this sounds. And we know that for those 15,497 people who love God, all things are going to work together for the good. And those 15,497 people who are called according to his purpose. For the 15,497 that he foreknew, he also predestined them to be conformed to the image of the Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And the 15,497 whom he predestined, he also called. And the 15,497 whom he called, he also justified. And the 15,497 whom he justified, he also glorified. And let me ask you a question. Was one of those 15,497 lost? Not one. The same number that he began with is the same number that he ends with. Of all those whom he chose, not one of them were lost. This is the security of God's salvific plan. This is why this is so significant. Now, lest you think this is just Paul's idea, Paul is simply borrowing from Jesus. Listen to Jesus' words in John chapter 6, verse 37 to 39. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. I'm gonna see that everybody whom the Father has appointed is there with me on the last day. Think about these words of Jesus in John chapter 10, even more explicit, talking to the Pharisees. He says, you do not believe because you're not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them. As they follow me, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. Not one I will lose. This is what Paul is trying to communicate. 
Now, let me say a couple things here, y'all. I know there are a lot of questions when it comes to the doctrine of predestination, God choosing some and apparently not choosing others. There's a lot of questions that come into that. Questions again, like that doesn't seem very fair. Questions like, well, what about this person over here? What about my loved one over here? who I've just kept trying to share the gospel with and not putting their faith in Jesus. What about, are we robots? Okay, if God's already decreed the end, do I even need to go share my faith? I mean, everybody's gonna come to faith anyways, right? Like it's not gonna stop God. All those questions are good and right. I've wrestled with them 30 plus years in my walk with Jesus. And we are going to cover all those questions in the coming chapters, every one of them. Now, I am going to tell you, I don't know it's going to answer them perfectly all the time. There is an enigmatic way of God that we can't get our heads around. You and I are finite creatures. Do you know that? We are finite creatures. Think about this question. Think about when it's posed to you, the fact that God has always existed. Anybody ever thought about that? You'll lose your head over that one for a little bit. Explode. The fact that God was never created, he's always existed. That blows our heads. You know why? Because we're finite beings. All we've ever known is a beginning and an end. And now you're telling me there's somebody out there that's sovereign of all and always existed? I don't have a category for that. It's an enigma. It doesn't mean it's no less true. It just means it's hard for me to get my head around this. And I will pose to you the beauty of the doctrine of election is what we're meant to know in it. And then there's a thousand things we're not going to know. There is an enigma between our responsibility and God's sovereign choice that I can't quite connect but it doesn't mean it's no less true. And there is a plan in it. And again, we're gonna wrestle with some of the hard questions, but I want you to know this. I want you to know the main point of this text that Paul's trying to communicate is that God can't lose you because he chose you. And I want you to know this. I'm gonna hammer this probably every week for the next month while we're in this text, but you will never get Romans 8 and 9 if you don't go back and get Romans 1 and 2. If you don't understand what it means to be dead in your sins, you will never know what it means to be alive in God. And you'll never know how a, how a person who's dead can bring themselves back to life apart from an external power source who decreed it be so. And so God is in charge of the whole thing. We gotta get 1 and 2 before we can get 8 and 9. But the second thing I wanna tell you is that if you come out of Romans 8 and 9 mad at God, you've read it wrong. Paul didn't write this. It's not, it's not as if Paul was penning the letter of Romans and he wakes up one morning, he's already covered the first seven chapters and he's on chapter eight and he's just sitting there one morning and he's going, you know what? What can I write today that would really jack Christianity up for all eternity? What is something I could write that would really tick people off and make them mad at? I got it. I'm gonna tell them that God chose them and they didn't choose God. And I'm gonna write that down. That's not why Paul wrote this. Paul wrote this because he wants you to know God can't lose you. You're secure in him. He is sovereign over all things. And in the greatest game of Red Rover that's ever been played, you got to come over. God didn't have to save anybody. If you want to talk, we're going to deal with this later. I'm getting ahead of myself, but I got to say, if you want to talk about what's fair, God would have sent us all to hell. That's what's fair. That is justice. You want to talk about justice in our day? Punishing sin and evil, not letting it get off the hook. 
That would be justice. That would be fair. You know what's unfair? What's unfair is that God would choose a sinner like me and redeem me. I know I deserve hell. And the fact that he gave mercy to me, even if he saved one person out of a sea of sinners, that would be infinitely merciful of this God. I cannot get over that. I hope you can't get over that. I can tell you Paul never got over it. Now, that being said, as beautiful as this passage is on our security in Christ, you need to understand, however, there is still a struggle that you and I have. There is a purpose of salvation. There's a plan of salvation. And I want you to know the promise of salvation in verses 31 to 39. I got to tell you, one of the chief struggles that I have seen and experienced in my life when it comes to the trials that I've walked through is how easy it is for the enemy to mess with me. How easy it is to begin believing lies that God has somehow forsaken me. And I want you to know there are four common lies that I tend to believe and I know you tend to believe on some of your worst days. One of the lies that we believe is the lie of opposition. That because my whole world is falling apart right now, all the earth seems to be against me, I can start believing the lie that my opposition is actually stronger and greater than God. That these things are opposing me more than God is actually for me. There's a second lie that I can tend to believe. It's the lie of accusation. Because of maybe the stupid things I've done in my past, the enemy is just seeking to use them to bring them up in my face during these trials and say, see, had you not done that, this wouldn't be happening right now. This is all your fault. It's why the world around you is falling apart because the dumb decisions that you've made in your past and this continual shame can stir around in us. I'm believing that the lie of those accusations of my past are more powerful than God's promise of forgiveness for my present or the security of my future. The third lie that we can tend to believe is the lie of condemnation. In other words, these sufferings that I'm walking through, these accusations, this opposition, it's all just evidence that I'm not forgiven. That in fact, I'm being judged right now and God simply does not love me anymore. And we feel this continual sense of condemnation from the Lord in these sufferings. Trials have a way of making us question whether God's grace is really grace at all. It's a lie. And the fourth lie, maybe the greatest and worst of all, is the lie of separation. That because I'm suffering right now, this must be evidence that God really just does not love me and thus he has abandoned me. He has cut me off from his love. And as a Christian, this is the ultimate lie amidst my trials is to doubt the Lord's salvation and his steadfast love towards me in Christ. And then Paul is gonna tell us right here, He's going to take those four lies and he's going to prove them to not be true and back them up with four assurances that you can hang your hat on. Paul is going to say that for the believer in Jesus Christ, the one who has been chosen by God before the foundations of the earth, predestined and loved and redeemed and saved, if that's what you are believing are those lies, it is straight from the pit of hell because the good news of Jesus Christ has countered every one of those lies. I want you to see this here. In verse 31 through 39, this becomes Paul's sonnet, his anthem, his song of response for what God has done in saving the elect. This is the promise of your salvation. Four questions, four assurances. Question number one, verse 31. 
What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, then who can be against us? Let me ask this. Is there such a thing as opposition to the people of God? Is there such thing as people who are against what Christ is doing in your life right now? Oh, absolutely. Enemies who are opposed at your faith right now? Yeah, absolutely. Church history proves that. Worldwide persecution and martyrdom is out there because of this. Sometimes it's nearest to you and your family, your friends, your coworkers, your neighbors. Creation around us right now is opposed to us. COVID is all against us right now. Our own flesh can deceive us, our fallen minds, and certainly our adversary, the devil, are opposed to Christ's work in us. But Paul says in the grand scheme of things, considering all those threats, is there really anybody who can oppose you as much as God is for you? Is there really anybody? No, he says in verse 32, let's look at exhibit A. He says, he who did not even spare his own son, but gave him up for you, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? In other words, if God was willing to give you the greater, which is his son, do you not think that he's going to give you the lesser, which is carrying you through all the way to the end? You think God would actually give up his own son just to lose you on the back end? What kind of God would that be? He is a sovereign, omnipotent God. He is all-powerful. And he gave you his son. That is the standard of God's love and how far he will go for you. So what he started, of course he's gonna finish. So no, is there really anybody who can oppose Christ's work in you as much as God is for you? No, there is no opposition. Second question, second assurance, verse 33. He says, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? I go, well, thanks Paul for asking. I can think of a number of people who would bring some accusations against me. There are a number of folks from my past and some in the present who would love to probably dig up some things on Shea Summon and put it up in God's face and say, see, don't you see what he did back then? Do you see that? And you're gonna let him into your presence after done that? There could be a number of folks out there who can go digging up trash on us, but there's nobody worse at doing that than our adversary, the devil. These words from Revelation chapter 12, verse 10 tell us exactly what Satan does every day. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. And we go, amen, salvation's here. But notice the last part of that. But the accuser of our brothers, yes, he's been thrown down, but he still accuses us day and night before God. Think about that theologically. Every day, Satan stands before the throne of God going, oh really God, tell me more about their deservance in your presence. Tell me more about what was running through their head just yesterday. Tell me more about what came out of their mouth. Tell me more about that relationship they just shoved. Come on, God. Seriously, you're going to let them in? day and night, 24 hours a day, constantly accusing us of our sin. And in the moments of trial and suffering, it can be easy to believe, surely this is happening to me because of what I've done. And having those accusations just repeating in your head, and Paul says, no, 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 wait a minute. Is there really anybody 
who can bring a charge against you that would stand? Is there anybody out there who could ever knock you out of the security that you have in Christ's arms just because of some shameful thing that you did in your past? No. Because at the end of verse 33, who is the one that declared you righteous in the first place? Was it your own track record and performance? Or was it God himself as the final judge? Verse 33, he says, it is God who justifies. Let me ask you a question. If the Supreme Court makes a decision, can you appeal that decision any further up the ladder in our country? No. Once it hits the Supreme Court, that's the final stop. In this sense, the Bible says whenever Satan or anyone else comes accusing you in an attempt to make an appeal towards whether or not you really are or aren't Christ, God tells us those accusations are not heard. He is the final judge and jury on your estate because it's not your track record or your performance that justified you. It was God through his son, Jesus Christ. Done. So for the believer who wrestles with this, there is no accusation. Third question, third assurance, verse 34. He says, who is there to condemn? (laughs) So here it's interesting. We see Satan doesn't just stop at accusation. He's got to go in for the kill. He wants that gavel decision that God ruled upon to be reversed so that what you have gained through Christ can somehow be lost. But can he? Can that happen? Can you lose your salvation just because there is one out there who continually seeks to bring your sin before God's throne? Is there such thing as double jeopardy in God's courtroom where you can be retried over and over and over again for the same sin? No, you can't. Verse 34, because your penalty was paid once and for all. He says in verse 34, Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, the one who was raised, who's now at the right hand of God who is indeed interceding for us. Again, we are not secure in our salvation because of what we do or don't do for Christ. We are secure because of what Christ did for us. On that cross, in his death, where he became our substitute and paid the penalty for our sin in order to reconcile us to the Father. In his resurrection, he conquered the grave and gave us new life in his resurrection power. And right now, John tells us he's seated at the right hand of God in the throne of heaven, and one of his main roles is advocating for us. Listen to this from 1 John 2, chapter 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, hang on to this. You have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. In other words, John tells us that because we have an advocate, we have a defense attorney in Christ who defends us against the accusations of our enemy with his own blood and with his own scars. And because of that, those threats of condemnation are not heard. Done. It is finished. No condemnation. Final question, final assurance, verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ. And he lists seven things here. Can these things separate you from the love of God that is found in Jesus Christ? Should tribulation separate you? Tribulation, as it's used here, is any hard-pressed affliction. Is there any hard-pressed affliction you can walk through that would separate you from the love of Christ? What about distress? Distress, as it's defined here, means narrow place. That's how it's translated. When you are pinned in to a dire calamity, Can that separate you from the love of Christ? 
How about persecution? Which defined here means to harass you in such a way as to make you want to flee. Can that separate you from the love of God? How about famine? The idea of being without food or drink, leading to hunger and thirst. And that's combined with nakedness. The idea of being without shelter, exposed to the elements. Can extreme poverty actually be evidence that you are not God's? What about danger? Danger here means a peril that brings you literally to the brink of death. Can that separate you? Or what about death itself? That's the idea of sword, of being executed. Can even death separate you from the love of Christ? Now, let me tell you something. Seven kinds of suffering are listed right there. Do you know Paul in 2 Corinthians 11 experienced six out of those seven? And the last one would come for him a few years later, his own death. Paul experienced all seven of those things. Can those things that we just read, can they happen to a believer? Absolutely, they can. In fact, in verse 36, Paul quotes the sons of Korah from Psalm 44, who are lamenting the calamities that they had suffered at the hands of their enemies. And Paul applies it to his day when he says, as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. My goodness, can that happen to a Christian? Can a Christian actually be slaughtered for the sake of God? According to Paul and according to the sons of Korah and according to our brothers and sisters throughout church history, absolutely that can happen. So understand what Paul is saying here, and this is important. Paul is careful to say, it is not the love of Christ that separates you from those things. It's that those things cannot separate you from the love of Christ. And there is a difference. In verse 37, no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Notice he doesn't say we're just copers in our tribulations. We are conquerors and not just conquerors, literally super conquerors. The idea that while we might be defeated in our circumstances, the love of Christ triumphs by carrying us all the way through them to the very end. Now, how sure is Paul that nothing can separate you from the love of God in salvation? Verse 38 and following closes here. For I am sure that neither death nor life, that is no event, nor angels nor rulers, that is no being, nor things present, nor things to come, that is no time, nor powers, no political force or entity, nor height nor depth, that is no place, nor anything else in all creation, just in case we miss something, will ever be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So why is there no opposition? Because God happens to love you even more than those who would oppose you. Why is there no accusation? Because God has declared you righteous, not, not on the basis of your track record, but on the basis of his son. Why is there no condemnation? Because your defense attorney is perfect. And even though the evidence is stacked against you, he intercedes for you with the evidence that is in his hands and in his feet. It says, you are mine. And why is there no separation? Because God's love for you is not predicated upon your circumstances. It's predicated upon his son, Jesus. And he is the anchor that holds you in the midst of the fiercest storms that life will throw at you. So church, understand you and I are secure in Christ, not because we were brilliant enough to find our way in salvation to him, 
but because in his sovereign election, he stooped down and grabbed hold of us and he will never let you go. Let me just say, I know there are probably some in this room who maybe you came here, maybe you're a guest today, or maybe you've come kind of just in hostility towards the Christian faith, but you're here today and you would be, it would be not unfair to categorize you as having spent most of your life running from God. You have hardened your heart towards him. But maybe now, even in this moment, you sense his relentless pursuit of you. I don't care how fast your legs are, you can't outrun God. God's arms are not too short to save you. He can reach and he will pursue you until your last breath. And if he has chosen you, he will break you and bring you to faith. He did that with me. I know he can do it with you and that is not cruel. That is the most loving thing he could ever do. So rather than fighting against it, I would encourage, I would invite you, surrender today. Put your trust in Jesus and be saved and rest in his provision. For the rest of us in this room who have already done that, what other thing can we do but fall on our face and worship? Who else can you owe? Is there any other name that we can gather around on a Sunday like this and celebrate that's greater than that name? Nobody has loved you like God has loved you. Nobody has pursued you like God has pursued you. And nobody has secured you like God has secured you. And he will not drop the ball on you. So child of God, rest in him. Exalt the name. Exalt the name. Let's pray. Father, it is in humility that we come before you and pray right now. Oh God, what a marvelous plan. As Paul will conclude at the very end of this section in chapter 11, who has known the mind of God? Your ways are higher than our ways. They are more infinite than our finiteness. Forgive us, God, when we have believed that we are smarter than you. Oh God, humble us in this text. Fill us with gratitude of a God who has loved us like nobody else. You told us, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Oh God, may that fuel us in worship. And as we will see in Romans 10, may it fuel us in evangelism that we might go out and unashamedly proclaim the name of Jesus Christ so that all whom you have appointed would come to faith in you and taste of your mercy. Thank you, God, for this beautiful invitation. We love you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.